creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference Podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Nick. And today we have on a friend that we've never met in person. I, although, did, I feel like we passed each other at SBL one time and waved. And we're like, hey, hi. And, it counts. Uh, yeah, that, that counts as meeting in this age. But we have on our friend, uh, Dr. Nijay Gupta. And it's just a pleasure to have on someone that we've followed for a while on social media and through your publications and just your ministry at large. And so it's not, that's not to sound creepy, but it's to say uh, you, your impact is, has been uh, very positive on both our kind of academic world. So thank you for taking the time to join us on a Friday afternoon and uh, welcome. Thanks guys. Great to be with uh, fellow West coasters and glad to connect with you again. Yeah, for sure. So uh, tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, well, um, you know, I will briefly go back to uh, my early years. I was born and raised in Ashland, Ohio. Uh, there is a seminary there. Some of you may know Ashland Seminary. Um, so I like to say I grew up basically across the street from Ben Witherington. Um, I actually didn't know him uh, until he had moved away to Asbury. Um, but uh, I actually went to high school with his uh, daughter, who later on passed away, which was sad. But um, uh, I went to, to school with his daughter, so I knew his family, and we were in Latin class together, public school. So there you go, small town, rural Ohio, public school, took Latin. But uh, born and raised in Ashland, um, I became a Christian in high school uh, through my brother. Um, my parents are Hindu, but my brother uh, came to the Lord and then and then ministered to me. Um, I went to college at Miami of Ohio, uh, not Miami, Florida, and uh, I studied classics and public relations there, which is a, a strange mix, but they both helped me out in life a lot. Uh, and then I went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell. Uh, we used to call Fuller our evil twin, uh, since we share some heritage uh, there with uh, Akengay, I think. Is that right? Akengay, but I don't know. Y- y'all had Gordon Fee. We never got Gordon Fee. So uh, he was before my time, uh, but but he, you know, cast a long uh, shadow there for sure. We did have Doug Stewart, the other uh, co-writer of that famous book, How to Revive for All It's Worth. Um, I met my wife uh, Amy in seminary at Gordon Conwell. She was a student, uh, and we got married. Um, we had our first child there. Um, had a wonderful experience at seminary. Got a chance to TA for Greek, got super fired up about the possibility of teaching and doing research and all of that. Uh, and then I was looking at PhD programs, and I ended up going to the UK, uh, University of Durham, uh, Northern England. Uh, it was just kind of the, the, the 1990s bulls era of uh, New Testament scholarship when I was at Durham. N.T. Wright was the Bishop of Durham, which was a huge draw for me at that time. Uh, uh, John Barclay, I worked with John Barclay, Stephen Barton, um, C.K. Barrett uh, was still alive at the time, got to hear him preach in the Methodist church in our area, uh, Charles Cranfield. So it was 
uh, Francis Watson, Lawrence Stokenbrook. So it was just an incredible, incredibly rich uh, New Testament seminar we would have when you'd see N.T. Wright and John Barclay going at it every now and again on various issues. <laughs> and they and, haven't stopped, I'm told. They and they not. haven't stopped, but they're not in the same city anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was it was wonderful. I had a wonderful experience there. My son was born there. Um, and then after that, we moved around a whole bunch. Uh, we lived in Ohio, Seattle, Philadelphia, New York, and finally landed here where I live now in Portland, Oregon. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, I teach uh, at Northern Seminary with uh, the uh, famous uh, Scott McKnight. Uh, and so it's kind of, I, I like to joke that, you know, because I'm a colleague, I have a bat phone where I can call Scott and ask him for uh, advice or resources. And, and so that's one of the best privileges I have is, is my Scott phone to be able to make that connection. So yeah, living the dream, enjoying being a professor in kind of middle of my career and get to do fun things like podcasts. Wonderful. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, Nor Northern, it's, uh, I, I met at the uh, American Baptist Biennial on ordaining the American Baptist churches. Yeah. And I met, um, oh, I forget, uh, Bill, I forget, he, he didn't introduce himself by his last name, but the, the president of Northern. Bill Shield. Yeah, Shield, president. President. yeah Dr. Shield, yeah. Met him in a, met him in a elevator. I'm like, oh, hi, I'm Nick. He's like, oh, hi, I'm Bill. I, I work at Northern. I'm like, okay, this, he looks familiar. And then turns out he knows the the people that are right up the street from our church and all that sort of stuff. And it was just one of those things. It's like, oh my gosh, you meet just the most interesting people. And it's, it is a small world, especially in the digital age. So I guess thank God for that aspect at least. And he's a New Testament scholar, uh, studied at Baylor, and oh, wow. and is quite a distinguished uh, New Testament uh, scholar. Yeah. So uh, you have an upcoming book. Uh, what's it? What, what's it? What's the title? And if you could give our listeners a little summary. Snippet. Um, yeah. So um, it's still a ways away from being done. So I'm in the process of writing it right now. Just just to be clear. But um, you know, I'll go back a little bit and just say um, a couple years ago. You guys might remember this. Um, I decided to write a blog series on why I believe in women in ministry. Yes. Um, ended up being like 22 posts or something like that. I was on vacation uh, at the beach uh, for a couple of days. And one night I just got this inspiration. I'm just going to do this. And I started writing and you might remember, I just put them out really quickly, like over a period of a couple of weeks or th two or three weeks. Uh, and it just blew up. And I think it was um, having something really short because nothing I said was brand new except telling my story. Um, but a lot of the stuff I said, you know, you guys write in this area, it wasn't, you know, cutting edge. It was just two page blog posts, um, that accumulated and yet it was, you know, widely read, widely commented on. Um, I know several seminaries that use it as required reading, including Western seminary here in Portland, oh, wow. Trinity, uh, evangelical divinity school uses it. Um, so it gets, it gets, you know, utilized a lot and, um, I was uh, obviously really pleased. There was, a, um, I think in Lithuania, there was a women's Lutheran movement, underground movement that was reading it to uh, uh, as part of their kind of bringing women's ordination back to Lithuania, something like that. So they reached out to me, asked me if they could read some of it publicly there. And so it was exciting to see, to see that getting utilized. I had a, a one or two publishers reach out to me and say, Hey, let's do a book. And I said, no, cause again, I didn't say anything brand new, but as I've been studying the subject over a decade or more, 
And as I've been digging a bit deeper, I realized I do have some new things to say and, and what I feel like is a new angle. And hopefully you guys uh, can resonate with this since you've done some of the, some of the wet work yourself. But so then I ended up approaching university press uh, academic uh, and, and I just said, Hey, I, I really want to do a book on this, but I really want to focus on real life in the first century and what, what churches really looked like, how were women involved? Um, we talk in so much theoretical terms about things and we talk about prohibitions and do's and don'ts and can and can'ts, but what did the situation on the ground actually look like? And that's the basic idea behind the book. So I'll just say my provisional title is uh, the women leaders of the earliest Christian churches. And the reason I call it that is women in leadership is not a theory. It's a fact. Um, so then, you know, I think what ends up happening is we, when we study the subject, we start with prohibition texts and then we try to fit everything else into that. And I am the approach I'm taking is let's start with what was going on and the many women that were involved in ministry from day one. And then let's try to understand the prohibition text in light of that. Um, and so when people say, so the tagline I'm kind of putting out is when people say women can't, my response is, but they did. So what are you going to, what do you do with that? Right. And so that, that's the basic grounding for what I'm working on. It changes the starting point too, because the discussion already gets biased um, against women. If you start with can women dot, dot, dot. Right. right. Yeah. And, and a lot of it, I mean, you guys know this, but a lot of it is uh, some of these some of these leaps we take to get to certain statements we make. So for example, because of what the Bible says, women can't be pastors. So then I, I don't think people ask often enough, what's a pastor? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I thought about writing an article uh, before there were pastors because this doesn't seem to have been now, if I'm, you know, if I'm talking to some really, you know, savvy complimentarian friends, they'll say something like, by pastor, I mean elder with teaching authority, you know, that's fine, but let's just use the precise terms that you want to use because pastor, you know, someone with a shepherding function, you know, so I just want to get the terminology precise because some of the things we're talking about, I don't think a lot of people in the pews or in the churches really understand these things aren't mentioned directly in the Bible. What you're doing is you're, you're making all these associations. And my question is, do those really hold up to what we actually see going on in the New Testament? Yeah, it's, it's something I've been arguing with friends about for a long time. I said, I don't know if there's a New Testament ecclesiology, but there are New Testament ecclesiologies and how you navigate those spheres of influence and how they relate to one another. I mean, there's a reason 1 Corinthians is not called 1 Timothy and why 1 Timothy is not called 1 Corinthians and stuff like that. And so it's starting points are so important. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm reading a book right now by Luke Timothy Johnson, just came out like yesterday, called Interpreting Paul. And his whole argument in the book is we should never write a theology of Paul because he says, just like Platonism, you end up saying, I don't need to read Plato because now I understand this thing called Platonism. You don't understand how richly diverse Plato's writings were, how nuanced you just feel like I have this thing, Platonism, and that covers it. We might say the same thing about New Testament theology. You might say the same thing about Paulinism. If we just name something, Paul's treatment of women, are we capturing the full 
uh, dynamic of that. And and often we're leaving stuff out. And as you guys know, people often leave out Romans 16, which is pretty massive. When I talk to people about why they changed their mind on women in ministry, um, I feel like in many cases, people like Mike Bird, uh, Scott McKnight, I think, um, Romans 16 plays a part in that. And I just taught a course on this at Northern in winter. And often my students will say, why wasn't I taught about Romans 16 earlier in my formative faith? And there's reasons for that. We, we, we prioritize things and we put things in various places. And then we just bump some of these texts down to the bottom and they never get really examined for what they're worth. Yeah, and speaking of that, were, were you always a, a complementarian and then changed your mind, or were you always kind of friendly to egalitarianism? What was your brief journey on that? Yeah, because I didn't come from a Christian background, um, I came into this with um, with a really flat understanding of Christianity. And so I just started reading popular Christian books at that time, which was for me the like mid-1990s. And at that time, the big name was John Piper. And so I just devoured Piper stuff. I went to um, college and then I was involved with campus ministries there and campus ministries, especially Campus Crusade, which is what I was mostly involved with. They were really into Piper. They were really into Grudem. Uh, and, and so the message I received was to be a very serious and intellectual Christian. You have to read Grudem Systematic Theology and you have to like basically follow all of Piper stuff. And so I, di I didn't know any better. I didn't know there was a main line out there. I had no idea. This was all I knew. It was like C.S. Lewis and these guys. I knew there was a Dallas Willard, and but that was pretty much it. And so I just consumed that stuff. And the message I got was what I call package theology. If you feel like they're right in areas of Christian hedonism or the importance of missions or the importance of taking church seriously, then you just accept everything else in the package and complementarianism or patriarchy, whatever you call it. I just assumed it was part of the package. And I kind of just passively adopted that uh, passive may not be the right word. Cause I, I just, I felt strongly about men and women and what they should and shouldn't do. So I went to Gordon Conwell. I wrote my first year systematic theology paper, why women shouldn't be in ministry or why women shouldn't lead or be senior pastors or something like that. And um, I just rehearsed kind of the normal lines, the male disciples, the male apostles, the prohibition texts. Uh, and then over the course of seminary, um, Gordon Conwell was a place where you had people of different views and on this. I started to meet female professors. And, and even though I had my guard up, I was like, wait, but they love Jesus. They read the Bible. They care about ministry. What's going on? And then I started to meet MDiv students, even though I was told stay away from those MDiv female MDiv students. They're, they're liberal. They don't trust the Bible. Um, I, that wasn't true. My wife was a master of any student and she was just like me, did campus ministry with campus crusade in college. She had a passion for missions. She had passion for the law. She had passion for evangelism. She had passion for the church. We were almost the same when it came to our love for scripture, love for Jesus. And so that started to really change how I looked at the subject. And so then my second and third year seminary, I just poured myself into the scholarship in a way I hadn't done before. I discovered Gordon Fee, Craig Keener, Ben Witherington. Actually, my mentor at Gordon-Conwell um, was Catherine Crager. That's a long story. Uh, I, I started working with her before I was an egalitarian, and, and she wasn't directly involved in that. Um, but just seeing her expertise as a classic scholar, 
Aida Spencer was also at Gordon-Conwell and just seeing her excellent scholarship, her thriving as a New Testament scholar, uh, her husband uh, as well, Bill Spencer. So then I wrote my final theology paper, Why, why Women Should Be in Ministry uh, Leadership. And, and that paper was so much more nuanced, richer, deeper. And I think the big thing I learned in seminary was um, not so much it's an open and shut case on either side as much as it was far more complicated than some people make it out to be. And uh, then you're starting to wonder, um, am I going to make a really hard decision to prevent women from ministry? Am I willing to, you know, meet my maker and say, hey, I prevented, you know, 60% of the church uh, from activating their and operating within their gifts uh, on the basis of what? And, um, and that's kind of where I've, where I've gone from there. Um, but I went, I went through a pretty, pretty big turnaround on that. Some of my friends at that time saw that happen in me. Some of them warned me I was going liberal. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I've, I've felt that my doctrinal scripture has not changed since then. So here I stand. <laughs> well, wonderful. Um, so tell us a little bit about some of the um, unique contributions in your book so far. Um, or at least some of the highlights you would like to share. There we go. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, so um, one of the things that's kind of I've been thinking a lot about is the structure of patriarchy because we often throw around the term patriarchy as if it's just a really one-dimensional thing. Now, the Roman world was absolutely patriarchal. Um, Men could vote, women couldn't. Men could hold office, women couldn't. There were legal things involved and property and all kinds of things. Um, But something that I was kind of surprised at and that I've had to do a bit of following up on was patriarchy wasn't the only, it definitely wasn't the only, and maybe perhaps even wasn't the most important social category in the Roman world. So instead of referring to Roman patriarchy, I now refer to Roman class patriarchy. And we have a hard time with that today because social class isn't exactly uh, rigid today in America as it was in Rome then. Having lived in England, I mean, I can see how class is still a, a dimension of living uh, of life in England, but couldn't have the royals and everything. We don't have that, right? But um, I, I remember having a conversation with a few historians about this, that, um, you know, if if you had a man and a woman walking towards each other on a street, who gives way? on the street. And you might say the woman does because the man is more important. But the question that the historians ask is who has a higher social status? And that can change uh, the dynamic of power. Um, And what we learn from the New Testament as we read about various um, women that participated in uh, ministry in Jesus' time or in the apostolic period is um, you see especially high social class women involved in ministry. Uh, Presumably Phoebe is one of those uh, women. Lydia may be uh, one of those women. Nympha uh, may be one of those women. Um, Perhaps uh, Priscilla, we're not sure. Um, What does that mean? That means that um, the church was utilizing class. I mean, it may feel kind of icky to say that, uh, but Paul was a shrewd person and he used his own Roman citizenship at times to get him out of hot water. They were utilizing social class to unlock doors, to make things happen. 
And so specifically, think about Luke chapter eight with these women that are, you know, Jesus wasn't against taking money <laughs> from these high class women. Uh, so they were paying for his ministry. I mean, uh, so what does that tell us? That tells us that gender wasn't the sine qua non of ministry. It wasn't the defining factor. Now, does that mean we should only let people of high class do things today? No, but it does mean that um, that Paul wasn't, uh, people like Paul weren't defining things according to gender in terms of who could do what. I think in, in many ways it was uh, who can get the job done. <laughs> it was a very practical dynamic. Well, he, um, Paul yes, he was educated, trained people, but yeah, yeah, he was a pragmatist in many ways. I mean, he, you know, I just looked up today or just wrote about this yesterday when it says, when Paul says in Romans 16, um, he commends Rufus and Rufus's mother. And he says, she was a mother to me. It, it, she may have been someone that got him out of jail. I mean, that's a matronage, patronage kind of dynamic. Uh, we might think, oh, she's cooking him like empanadas or something. Um I, I don't I don't know if he would say that in this letter at that point. I mean, he's talking about some pretty high level things. It could be he's in jail and she's bailing him out. I mean, people did that kind of thing, even women in that time. And so um, so one of the things about this book is trying to understand a more three dimensional way the world worked at that time and how the churches actually reflected in many ways the social dynamics of society. Obviously, they changed things up. Obviously, they were subverting or destabilizing status. But to say patriarchy and just say that, um, that's not telling the full story. And that's actually hiding some important things as well. Yeah, and the reality that women of higher social class were also acting as managers of entire households too. So you know, yes. that's kind of it doesn't quite fit some of our paradigm. Um, and I think uh, some of that's reflected in First Timothy even. Um, so thoughts yeah. over your household. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and Lydia is a good example. I mean, Paul yeah. seems to be going out of his way to minister to her and her household. And then what I missed until I read this again recently was, and you guys know this, I'm sure, uh, you know, they, 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 minister to Lydia, God opens up her heart, that all happens. Then she's set aside that part of the narrative. And then, you know, the apostles go through this, you know, whole other ordeal with the magistrates and then they get out and where do they go? They go to Lydia's house. And that that's a small detail, but it's actually huge because at this point, the Christian community is obviously very, very small and she's the center of it all. Um, and so this is, you know, th th this, when we think about what was what churches looked like at that time and what was actually going on, how churches were run, who was in leadership, who gave voice, um, you're thinking of first century Philippian church. Lydia's got to be at the center of it. I mean, you can't really get around that if you if you trust the book of Acts. And then uh, I like to say, name all the people we know in the in the Philippian church. You start naming them, right? Clement, maybe Epaphroditus, right? Lydia, Yodia, Syntyche. We actually know more names of the women than we do the men. Now, there are more people, right? The jailer, who knows who that is? You know, multiple Episcopoi, multiple Diakonoi, I don't know. But you just name them and you know more women. What about the church in Laodicea? We only know one person. It's Nympha. It's a woman, probably. Um, 
it's really fascinating that women, again, are everywhere and they seem to be doing everything. Yeah, and I guess it's no wonder that Paul does liken his apostolic ministry to being a mother um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, a nurse. So it's kind of an interesting, maybe multifaceted dynamic than we realize. Yeah, and and that's that's too. I remember in uh, I I was reading something. I can't remember what it was. It was on the textual tradition of anti-woman tendencies in the Book of Acts. That's right, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and you see, so you see that kind of bias or prejudice against women in that kind of strand of the of of the tradition. But then you have Origen and others employing women scribes, and so it's kind of this interesting like. It's it's just it's it's too easy to say sexist or it's too easy to say liberative. It's like no, the, the world is as it is then. It is now far more complicated than just kind of an easy oh patriarchy answer. And it's just life is just too complex for that sort of stuff. And I'm 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 really curious to see where you're going with that because that's so interesting. Well, you know, again, we talk about patriarchy. The Roman rule is patriarchal. You think of the emperor. You think of the senators. And yet we have so many examples of women achieving levels of power that were almost equivalent to male politicians. So for example, in Pompeii, uh, we learn about this woman who has a statue in her honor named Eumachia, and she wields a massive amount of social power. She didn't hold an official position uh, like like a senator or something, but we know that she was a priestess of a local cult that was really important, which gave her social power. We know she gave money to some businesses and they erected a statue in her honor. Um, so she held a lot of social capital. And uh, in that, she was able to um, achieve influence. Uh, and and uh, can't help but think we have something similar going on uh, with, with women where... Um, you know, are they given official positions in this and that? I don't know, maybe, probably in my opinion, but just like you said with householders, household managers, um, they, you know, especially if they're a widow, they controlled their own households. Um, they were functioning in the way that, that men in default setting would have functioned. So there are all these seemingly exceptions uh, women seem to so so sometimes there's a vacuum and women fill that vacuum and uh, in the Roman world it seems like that was allowed as long as it was efficient uh, from a from a civic standpoint or something like that uh, you might know about this but this is one of my favorite uh, case studies there was a woman in Perga I think it's second century um, and she uh, her name is Magna Plancia Plancia Magna And from our evidence about her, uh, this is in the Roman world, she basically ran the entire city by herself. Uh, She's referred to as um, a city councilor, which is kind of like a mayor. Uh, In fact, there's a news article that says first female mayor in all of history. Uh, And she had a a massive gate to the city erected in her honor. And what's interesting about that is her name is found all over it without reference to a man, but the men's name are mentioned in reference to her. So instead of it saying Plancha Magna, wife of, it'll say like Alexander, husband of. So everybody is kind of reoriented around her. Um, and it's, it's incredible because if we didn't have archaeological evidence of this, it would seem made up. Uh, that you could have this woman who was basically the most powerful person in that city to the point where 
everything orbit orbited around her. In fact, the, the gate tells stories of the history of essentially Rome, and she's put in there amongst emperors and other kind of important people. So they went pretty far to to give her high status. And you can you can imagine that if you wanted to do anything in the city, there was nobody more important to go to than her to get her approval. And then we, we'd switch over to the church. And, you know, a, a case study I love to give to my students is the fact that at Pentecost, according to Acts chapter two, uh, um, Mary's there. Mary's there at the center of it. And that's often an, a detail missed. But if you look at Baroque paintings of Pentecost, uh, often Mary is in the picture in the middle. Hmm. And the reason why they do that is because it's a kind of allusion or callback to Luke chapter one, where it said that, you know, the angel says that the spirit will overshadow you. And then so the, the coming of the Messiah and Pentecost are being seen as one kind of fulfilled in the presence of Mary. Um, and I can, I can imagine that even if the early church did not afford traditional social status to people, you had these kind of celebrities <laughs> like Mary, the mother of Jesus. How could she not be a celebrity in the same way that Peter was a celebrity, right? Yeah. And how could she not have important status? So just for example, since we know some of the players in the scholarship today, Tom Schreiner, you know, has said on a couple of occasions uh, the apostles would not allow a woman to be in the elder meeting or to give feedback directly to the elders. Um, and my question would be, let's say Mary turned up at your church unannounced during an elder meeting. Would you say to Mary, the mother of Jesus, hang on, can you wait out there? Cause the elders are meeting and we can't have you in there. I guarantee you the answer to that is no, there's no way you would invite her in you would have to be from an alien planet not to think in those terms on social status about someone like Mary. Well, it just kind of transcribes modern Southern Baptist ecclesiology into the first century where cultural currency, as you've kind of alluded to, or social capital kind of, I wouldn't say transcends, but shifts the paradigm. Because I mean, if Mary showed up or what if, uh, what if Phoebe shows up with another letter from Paul? Oh, hold on, let outside. We'll, we'll read it. Don't, don't just don't worry yourself. And it's just like, like just, it, it almost seems like there's this sense of you almost need to have a bit of, I wouldn't say theological imagination, but a willingness to tease what is not said based on what is said. Because it's not as if the text is flat, because culture and history aren't flat. And so it's just, a, it's a weird kind of almost postmodern take on on the question from some of our complementarian friends. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I think when people imagine what life was like in the ancient world in terms of women in the house, sewing and cooking men out, chopping wood or whatever, they're imagining life in rural spaces where it probably was like that. But what's interesting is the apostles are often operating in urban spaces and urban spaces as kind of crossroads of the world as places where power dynamics are highly amplified. Um, then you're getting into the territory where women could wield a lot of power. Um, I like to talk about um, Livia, Empress Livia, and the fact that um, after she died, uh, her grandson, I think, established a cult in her honor, where people are literally worshiping Livia. Um, and, you know, you think, oh, women can, women can't. Uh, seems like women of a certain kind could and did. 
And it'd be hard to imagine a woman of high status going into Christianity only to be told, hey, this is what women can and cannot do. Uh, I don't think they would have put up with that. I don't think that would have worked for them. In fact, I think women felt uh, very much empowered, uh, as you guys, I'm sure, have studied, by uh, social destabilization going into gospel. I don't think it ran the other way, where they're like, listen, I know you're pretty important in your line of work, but here you're just going to sit sit in the pews and listen to the men. I, I honestly don't think it worked that way, especially in urban centers. Well, they did have to be told um, if a rich, wealthy person comes in, you know, don't give them the better seat and then put the poor people out. Um, yeah. So it, it kind of gives a little bit more reflection on kind of overall how things are seen. And what I like about a lot of your work is you do kind of put a lot of the details into perspective. Um, you do kind of just really paint a more clear picture of the situation. Um, I did go ahead and read the article you sent called Reconstruct junior's imprisonment. Um, I'd love it if you could actually share a little bit about that with our listeners as well. Um, specifically, I don't think there's not many people, actually, I don't know of any other work that really goes into detail about uh, junior's imprisonment. Um, it's yeah. usually hung up on, you know, is this a woman? Or, yeah. you know, is, yeah. is, is this, you know, grammatical construct saying the thing we want it to say? And yeah. we'll this discover, new rule we just this discovered. New, this new rule we discovered in 2000 in New Testament studies that no Greek father. Anyway, I'll be nice. But yeah, it, yeah, please. I, I'd love to hear more about this. Yeah. So, um, you know, just like you said, Junia has been studied for, you know, intensely for decades in terms of some of those profile features, but there's this little statement there that's really not talked about, and it's about her sharing imprisonment, soon um, uh, sharing imprisonment with Paul, Andronicus and Junia sharing imprisonment with Paul. And I started to think about um, what exactly is that entail? Like, is this like, didn't pay your parking fines? You know, what, what, what exactly went on? I remember coming across, um, uh, several statements that uh, that said um, people were not put in prison for petty crimes. Uh, you would be fined, you would be beaten. People were put in prison really to await trial, a, a kind of bigger trial scenario. And along those lines, um, I, I just made me curious: how often were women put in prison? Because you know, if, if most of the time women are kind of minding their own business and not starting, you know, riots, uh, you know, what are the percentages like? And, and the more I dug uh, into this, the more I found out it's, there's extremely little information on the experience of women in prison. And the information I did find uh, was really troubling. Uh, women weren't separated from men. That's really important to know. Uh, so they would just be lumped together in one big room. In fact, the story of um, Perpetua and Felicita, uh, Felicitas, uh, you know, the, the, the early Christian martyr uh, story, is one of our best sources of information for the experience of women in prison. And it very much uh, aligns with what we already know, that women were afraid for their uh, sexual purity. They're afraid for their life. Uh, they're afraid of getting hurt from other prisoners, but also from guards, uh, which were uh, soldiers. Um, and so maybe really think through, uh, you know, what's Junia doing, putting herself in this kind of position that she's going to put herself in harm's way. And so I remember consulting, I had an email conversation with Peter Oakes, a uh, very important New Testament historian, and just processing, there are a couple books on this subject, but just processing with him, what kind of crimes uh, 
could lead to her being in prison in terms of her being involved with Paul's kind of stuff. And those crimes are things like inciting a riot, uh, sedition, you know, really high level crimes. And in those situations, you go to a prison and, um, and what I came to conclude was the threat to women was higher than the threat to men because they were so majorly outnumbered. They weren't physically capable of overpowering men. Um, and you know, the, just the, the concern of, of rape and sexual abuse and things like that. And what's amazing about Junia is, um, she goes to prison, right? And then she gets out obviously, but then she's still doing ministry. And there's something really, and you might think that takes more courage from her than from Andronicus because of all the threats against uh, her specifically as a woman. Um, and then, so then you think, and then Paul says they're, they're older than me in the faith, which may mean they're actually older. And then you think uh, if there are anybody that Paul counted as heroes, uh, this has to be it. I mean, he didn't have a wonderful relationship with Peter <laughs> and he probably had a so-so relationship with the apostles. So if you're thinking of anybody that he considered kind of auntie and uncle in the faith, uh, I think this would be it. Uh, the, the, you know, some, I think it was um, Ambrosiaster. I can't remember who said that perhaps they were part of the 70 that were sent out uh, in, in the gospel of Luke. The 70 yeah. wider apostolic was, uh, cohort or, or Chris Sostom, I think I, I one of the, no, sure. I, don't I know, I know, which, I know the source you're thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, so it's really interesting to think about maybe his origin. Um, it, to me, it's just really interesting to think about um, that dimension of, of who she is. And, and as she did go to prison, go through all that, of course, she's an apostolos. You know, how could she not be an apostolos? They're not just going to cheer for her. How many of them have been in prison, you know? So um, that that strengthens the case for them being apostoloi, whether you call them apostles or or part of the kind of 70 missionaries. Um, it, it, it it ratchets up uh, the, 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 the risk uh, and the stakes of, of, of her ministry. Yeah, and I think, uh, was it Balcom also connects her to Joanna? Yeah, he's made that connection, um, saying that sometimes people had a more uh, Gentile name and a, corresponding to a Jewish name. Uh, I, I don't know anyone else that specifically accepts that argument, um, but anything's possible, and, and, and Balcom's just a really sharp person, so it's possible. Yeah, it's it's one of those interesting things that if if it is Joanna, you know, let's say it is, then you've got a direct link to the historical Jesus meeting up in an urbanized center in Rome with a woman who has both the social capital to be there and also the spiritual or cultural capital yeah. to be prominent among the people that Jesus and Paul would have sent out, you know, by a pentecost. So it's just it's if it's true, it's just a wonderful link. But it's it is I call it it's reasoned speculation, but it is still speculation of. Well, and a lot of this, uh, like they know who they're talking about and we're reading this later and, oh yeah, sure. Junia. Right. You know, <laughs> Joanna. Yes. We know all about these people. Sure. <laughs> yeah. We do know that various manuscripts fumbled up these names. Uh, Julia sometimes appears for Junia. So it can't be kind of, they lost memory of that pretty quickly if they did have some sort of connection to Joanna, but um, it's fun to think about. 
All right, so we were gonna ask you um, what advice you have for aspiring young scholars. Which of course we are attempting to be, so. <laughs> Uh, what advice do I have? Let's see. Um, I mean, I think you guys do this, but um, make sure to just network with people, with other students. Um, don't be afraid of going to regional conferences and trying to connect with people. I can't tell you how important network networking is for basically all of life. Um, whether it's um, getting a chance to write something for a collection or advice on doctoral programs or uh, early career kind of stuff. Um, I remember, you know, one of my friends in my doctoral program, we were talking about the importance of, of networking and he's just like, Oh, I'm not a schmoozer. And he just didn't. And I don't think he got really well connected, uh, to people. And I, I think that was really hard for him. And I don't do it to just sort of be, Hey, how you doing out there? Like pointing fingers. Um, I, you know, believe it or not, I'm an introvert. And so I like my alone time. Um, but I love, I love, meeting people and I love, you know, I don't want to talk to them very long, uh, but, but I love meeting people. I love people with shared interests. Um, I love helping people out and I love being helped out. Um, so it's, it's a nice thing. So, so I would just say, don't be shy. I know you guys have a podcast. You talk to lots of people, um, but ask for favors at the right time. Uh, ask for help. Just say, Hey, can you help out with this? The worst thing will happen is someone will say no. Um, get experience writing you guys already i already know you guys do that but um just getting experience uh writing book reviews i encourage lots of early career folks or pre-phd folks are you guys in phd programs or are you pre both, yes both yeah well okay I'm, yeah you're you're in you're in now yeah <laughs> technically a candidate it's very very be close to well yeah it's starting okay yeah so there we go so i'm university of aberdeen um I'm, okay i don't Know which year i'm in exactly um but uh past my first year and then nick um is just starting he got accepted earlier but we uh uh we had to pay for it so there we go yeah. so um we're working, we're both working full time so yeah. Yeah. yeah that's that's life yeah I, yeah doing book reviews you know expository times i do i do reviews for expository times that's a great way to just get in with some of these journals that are really really important and influential uh, get some experience, go to conferences, meet people, um, that, that, those are all, you guys are doing really good things. Um, I, I would say, um, just being really focused on writing a really good, uh, dissertation. I feel like people get really distracted by other writing projects. I know people that have tried to write popular books while they're in their doctoral program and they did, and I don't think it really helped them much. Um, I would just say you kind of punch your ticket as a scholar by writing a good uh, dissertation, uh, having a good relationship with your uh, advisor, um, and just kind of going through those normal steps of, of kind of uh, going through the academic process. Um, I mean, you guys may have read my book, Prepare, Succeed, Advance. I give a lot of professional advice there about methods and things like that, uh, how to sharpen your writing skills, how to sharpen your research skills. Um, but you know, looking back, let me think about it this way. Do I have, do, would I have done anything differently when I was a doctoral <laughs> student? Let's put it that way. Would I have done anything differently? Um, I mean, I, I know you live here, but if you can get over there and, and explore and enjoy uh, the Highlands and okay. uh, get to Durham and, you know, just enjoy Western Europe. Um, 
it's you know it's if you say to yourself oh there'll be time for that later no there will not Aberdeen's <laughs> beautiful I I've gotten there I, I've made it there once for a conference and to meet with my mentors and person yeah. over in Scotland like oh my goodness I'm looking forward to flying out to Ridley eventually yeah totally and get to know your fellow students I know it's hard in the in the circumstances you're in but if you can have a Facebook group or, you know, I mean, those relationships are really, really important. Thankfully you have each other and that that's great. I didn't particularly have that same connection, but um, you know, just not doing it alone. Um, a lot of people don't finish just because they're, they're burdened, they're lonely, you know, they're struggling and just having a community is, is really crucial, but it seems like you guys have some of that already. Yeah, and conferences too. Uh, I mean, it's filled with a bunch of, I, I laugh because it's filled with a bunch of introverts. Uh, most people there are introverts anyway, um, expected <laughs> to <true>. interact <laughs> in a group context. Um, and I mean, the plus side, like nerds love to talk about their subjects and yeah. it's a room full of nerds. So it's easy to network. And um, usually, you know, a lot of people aren't good at schmoozing anyway. And I mean, I just say like, find a topic that you love and find other people that love it too. And just learn from others. Yeah. No. Yeah. One of my favorite stories I, I had, a, we were at SBL in San Diego, I want to say, and I saw Richard Hayes who I'm <laughs> Richard Hayes doesn't, when he walks, he doesn't touch the ground for me. He, I, I love, I love his work. I love his, what he's been doing. And, but I saw him being mobbed by like a dozen people. And I'm like, I don't want to be the, the fanboy, the, the fanboy. And so as we, but, uh, on the way out, I'm going up the elevator and he's going down the elevators and I look over at him and we make eye contact and I just give him a wave like, how are you doing? And I could tell he really appreciated being left alone, but he gave me a, a hat, <laughs> you know, a hat tip and a wink and left me. And I was like, all right, I can, I can, that's a good, you know, cocktail story. I can roll with that. Some some of the nicest things you could do is like actually just, people alone. <laughs> hello. Nice to meet you. I yeah. See you're awesome. It's, it's kind of an occupational hazard for them. I, I, Richard is a little bit different because he is kind of shy and, and yeah. Uh, he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't, let me put it this way. He doesn't like that kind of attention yeah. personally. I don't know if it's an introvert thing. Uh, I just think he's just that, you know, he's kind of humble like that. Mike Gorman is similar to that, but Mike, Mike is great at connecting with people. Um, but he doesn't like the fame either. I think he just feels like it's too self, you know, self-centered. I suspect uh, Scott McKnight too. Scott's I, I an introvert. So it's funny. He always jokes about me being, uh, Nijay's a networker. And as if I'm an extrovert, which I'm not, but you know, he, it's funny, like he, he doesn't, um, he's very, he's very kind and you know, yes. he's very, he loves talking about certain things like baseball, but, um, but he's not out there just meeting a whole bunch of new people. Um, but I was going to mention if, if you could get a chance to go to the British New Testament conference, I think this year it's online, but I mean, that is, I actually don't like SBL just in terms of the like 8,000 people and it's really snobby um yeah, true. over the years i have tried to become more and more um just trying to treat people normally and i dress up less than i used to um <laughs> and i'll just pray for people like i feel like it's this really stuffy environment where you can't you know you can't be yourself but i'm just i just try now to just be myself and just enjoy it it's harder when you're students because you're trying to you know impress people i totally get that yeah, but, but I mean, that's a good note, too. I mean, especially in vein of egalitarianism and I mean, really Christian theology, um, there there is a, 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 I would say, a very toxic culture as well within academia, um, Christian academia. And then also, um, I would say, I mean, we were going to say Twitter world, too. Um, 
Would you like to maybe speak to that a bit and just help like in terms of people navigating these things? Cause it's- Cause there's a huge ethical dimension to being an academic, being a scholar and, and loving the church and how all that works. And there's- being an advocate too, you know? Yeah. yeah let me say something about the British New Testament conference and I'll, then I'll mention yes, that. Please. So the thing I love about the British New Testament conference is it's small. So it's like 140 people. So, and you're all in the same business and it's more like a family or a community where everybody's kind of cheering you on, you eat meals together, uh, you stay in, you know, basically dorms. Um, and you basically go to all the plenaries where at SBL, like, you know, maybe a hundred people or 200 or 300 go to the presidential desk at the British Tech Conference. You go, you do everything together except the small group stuff. Um, but then you come back together for the presidential address or the plenaries and it's just, you know, you get to know each other instantly and you just feel like a junior colleague rather than a student. Um, so I just, I met Todd still for the first time there and he was just become a wonderful mentor to me. Um, Helen Bond, um, I got to know through the British New Testament Society, just one of my favorite scholars, Paul Foster, Ian Paul. I mean, just um, fantastic people. Um, and again, everybody is cheering for you to succeed. Philip Estler was super nice to me at the Howard Marshall. So, um, it makes me really want to, uh, so my work is in the U S is a lot with IBR and, and our goal is to really make IBR like that Institute of Biblical Research. It's more of a family. We're cheering each other on, you know, we're not trying to take each other down in sessions, like with the, you know, with the assassin comments or whatever questions, um, in terms of social media, I, I, I've been working on processing social media for a long time now in terms of what to do as an academic. And I, st- you know, everybody's goal is to gain more friends. And, you know, there's nobody on Twitter that's posting that's not trying to get attention. That's the whole point of Twitter. Um, so anyone that's just like, oh, I just do it. You, there's a million things you can do. Clearly, you're on there for essentially one reason. It's not all bad, but I've learned that not all likes are the same. And I've learned that Twitter in many ways um, plays to uh, our kind of primitive emotions. And so if I said a certain statement with a whole bunch of angst and cynicism, uh, I'm going to get 500 likes. But if I say the same statement with a very measured tone, neutral, I'll get 20. (laughs) And uh, so what do we do? We go for the 500 because it feels good. It's kind of a, it's kind of like a, a release valve. You push it, it makes you feel better. Uh, and I used to do that. I used to do these, you know, really uh, interesting takedown comments, you know, these, you know, smackdown comments and I'd get the 500 likes or whatever. And I pat myself on the back. Good job for the day. And then I was on the receiving end of some of these <laughs> and I realized that doesn't feel good. Um, and especially over the last year especially the last six months but i think in in working with scott too i've learned a lot from the way scott uses uh social media um he never takes people down directly on there um just as a matter of personality and principle i think he's incisive but he almost never names names um not to be coy but because he's after something bigger which is influence um and and that's really meaningful to me because we we are shaping the next generation of scholars and students 
And um, so I really want to be a champion of other people. I want to be uh, known for what I'm for rather than what I'm against, even though there are times to be against things. Um, and so if you notice the things I do, I'm, I'm less and less trying to take other people down um, r rather than uh, instead just really trying to direct people to really good things. Um, and I'll make sharp comments, um, but I'll make them knowing that that uh, I'm also teaching my students uh, in these things. I'm teaching people how I want to be treated. Um, so I, I, I am concerned at the level of discourse that's happening, especially on Twitter and Facebook. Um, I, I, I think a lot of it's unhealthy. Um, I, I try not to get involved in most of it, even when I'm tagged into it. Um, I think that's because I know what it's like to be on the receiving end. And it is, uh, and, and at times it's put me in a really bad place, just, you know, having dealt with just blowback from things I said that I didn't really mean in a mean way. And yet people just do a pile on and next thing you know, you're being obliterated for weeks. Um, it, it's, it, it's funny because it's, it's just, this wouldn't happen in a professional atmosphere, but now I actually think it would. I think that world is affecting even what we think of as the more civil professional world. So I think to myself, what this person says to me at SBL, and now I think they would. <laughs> Whereas, you know, 10 years ago when I started in this field, I, there was still a level of civility, even if it was artificial or superficial. I think yeah. that's, I think that's disappearing. <laughs> it's like a whole new set of ethics has been <laughs> injected into our discourse so that um, outrage and I would say tearing others down has become the new morality almost um, versus again, like what you said, um, just putting forward what we're for, you know, and um, I like what you said too about just kind of um, in a sense, like seeing people as human beings and mm -hmm. like ourselves, you know, we, we get hurt um, and just trying to treat others the way, you know, we'd want to be treated. Well, and there's so much to, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to name this person's name because I felt bad after I retweet quote dunked on him. I, I felt very guilty afterwards. Twitter confession. Oh, Twitter confession. But it's one of those where it's like, on the one hand, I don't regret what I said because I think what he said was profoundly not uh, not uh, wise. Well, I'll, I'll be as neutral as I can. But then after that, I'm like, what did I just do? That, like you said, I pushed the button. And for about five seconds, I felt would felt good. But then I look over to another friend, a couple friends of mine who are calling this guy you know, names and stuff like that. And it's like, and I'm just kind of sitting there going like, what okay. have I started? Yeah. Well, and what have I started? But also, what am I what am I feeding into? Yeah, exactly. There, yeah. There's a there's a gentleman at church who who recently passed away, a dear friend of ours, uh, just you know being old and all that sort of stuff. But he uh, he used to tell this kind of proverb of uh, I think it's an uh, indigenous proverb, a Native American proverb, where it was something along the lines of inside every person are two dogs, a good dog and a bad dog, and which one wins? It depends on which one you feed. And I think with Twitter, it's so easy to to confuse the dogs and, you know, I'm doing the right thing, but it's like, at the end of the day, you just called a woman who disagrees with you on politics an absolute naughty word moron. And it's like, I'm pretty certain Jesus might have a word for you and for the rest of us who like and retweet that. And it's just, it's, it's just, it's a level of toxicity that I, I don't see as being as evidenced by the fruits of the spirit. Even if there are times, as you've mentioned, there, there are times for a sharp word. Yeah. And, but are you aiming this to make the person better? Or are you aiming this to make yourself feel better? And I think often it's we confuse the two and 
I don't know. It's, it's, I, yeah, I love what you said. It's just, it's, it's a healthy reminder for the rest of us yeah. and all of us to be like, no, you're talking with a human being misguided, wrong, sinful as they may be Christ still died for you when you were at your worst. So. And sometimes we're, we're misguided and wrong, you know, just yeah. speaking with that in mind, you know, yeah. and, and Twitter's a very unforgiving place. I mean, I said things that I realize now could be taken the wrong way and I apologize and the apology doesn't mean anything to anybody, <laughs> you know, people still, you know, you know, it's funny. Um, you know, people have said to me before, let's have a conversation on Twitter about this. And I said, I don't think we can have a conversation on Twitter. And oh, that you can. I really don't. I really don't think that kind of stuff is happening. Um, maybe just kind of polling and learning about what people think about things. I think that's happening. But the idea that you're going to change somebody's mind on a kind of major topic or, or kind of push the ball, you know, further down, it'll happen in very minuscule ways. But but as you guys have been saying, the bigger concern is this kind of entrenchment in these separate camps, the echo chambers, um, the kind of virtue signaling. Um, it, it runs very closely along the political lines. The same thing that's happening in academic circles is happening in political circles. I don't know if you follow Mary Beard, who's like my favorite, but she's a classist, uh, classicist. Uh, and she has gotten in trouble on Twitter for uh, some things related to who she follows and things. I feel like it's innocuous, but people have kind of canceled her on the basis of that. Mm -hmm. And she's just dumbfounded because it's not about what she said. It's about who she follows or who follows her. And it's become this like political game and that people are going to look at who follows you and then cancel you on the basis of that. Um, it's like guilt by association and yeah. that's happening at times. I've actually texted, you know, one of my editors and I just said, I'm done with Twitter. I'm off. And she's like, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> but like, it has troubled me so much because I have a, I have a daughter, um, you know, pretty close to 15. She's going to be jumping into the social media world. Mm. She's not interested in Twitter, but she's interested in Instagram. And um, I'm just worried about, you know, what that world is. And, you know, it can be great. There's some great stuff on there. I learn, I'm on Twitter every day. I learn things all the time. But especially during the pandemic, when that for many of us is the main way we're connecting with people. Um, it is kind of an artificial world. I know people say, no, this is real people in real places. But it, some of the structures of it make it very artificial and create when you say these are my friends like they don't care about you <laughs> um i mean sometimes they do but a lot of the people that like what you're doing they don't actually care about you um these are affinity groups and and unfortunately people can change sides very quickly uh i i, I guess what bothers me the most is just the amount of not giving people the benefit of the doubt. I don't know how to say that, but yeah, uh, totally. it, 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 it bothers me because you hope in person people would give you the benefit of the doubt and, you know, say to you, you know, I remember I had a student in class five, six years ago. I said something in class that uh, rubbed her the wrong way. She could have gossiped about me. She could have been on social media saying things about me, but she came to me in person. And she said, hey, you said this. It bothered me. Would you please clarify? I did. I apologized. And that was the end of it. I feel like now sh someone like that may go on social media and start badmouthing you. And I don't want that. You know, I want people to message. So I said something on social media five, four, five, three, two, three years ago. I shouldn't have said and uh, about somebody. 
And then someone I don't know, but that's a friend of mine on social media messaged me privately and very politely called me out on it. And I said, you're right. And I took it down and I, I just appreciate we could have that exchange privately that he could say, Hey, you know, uh, I don't think, I don't think that's bringing out the best in you. I don't think that's what you really want people to know that you're saying about people. Uh, I don't think that's good for your soul. And I was like, you're right. It's not. And I shouldn't have said it. And I kind of defended it, but I said, you're right. I need to take it down. It wasn't appropriate. And I, and I did, I, I want that to happen. I don't think, I don't see that happening often enough where people are like, listen, I'm going in a negative direction here and I don't want to do that. Yeah. And it's part of it is like, people are afraid to apologize now too, because it, it is a, it's classic mobbing tendencies. And if you apologize then they kind of move in for the kill, it, it's very toxic. And like you were saying earlier too, about guilt by association, I've been chastised for people I listen to. And like, for me, it's like, yeah, I'll listen to any, I'll listen to anyone. Um, how else am I going to know what I don't know? Um, and I don't have to be a passive, um, I don't know, conduit for everything I hear. Like I can think for myself and it's part of the issue is we are so siloed. We just, we can't even, um, we can't even listen to each other. And it kind of reminds, it's almost cult-like in that you get shamed for listening to the outsider or the, the unbeliever, you know, someone who doesn't have the purity of whatever the ethics are of your group. And, you know, it's just not a good place. And I, I just, you know, it'd be good to just figure out a way just to, you know, just to help more people just kind of break through, break free of this kind of toxic emerging culture. And, you know, and on top of that, the algorithms, we're dealing not just with people, but algorithms that are favoring certain things and really shaping what we see or don't see. Well, I've got Tom Schreiner on my shelf. I don't agree with yeah. Tom Schreiner and, about, Grimm. and Wayne Grimm. I, I don't agree with Tom Schreiner about mo many things. I'm pretty certain he loves Jesus and we agree on that. I'm but, pretty sure he's not the devil and going to like, I don't know, bring us all to Armageddon. Like, I'm, I'm just going to put that out there. It's like, like, it's like, I don't know, people forget that you can still, you can be wrong about something really wrong and still be a Christian. Yeah. yeah, you know, and you can have friends with people that are not like you. Like two, three years yeah. ago, uh, Jonathan Pennington, who teaches at Southern Seminary, invited me to come out there and give some uh, talks to his class, his THM class. Wonderful. And I said yes because we're friends. I did the whole cars coffee thing, and I spoke to his class. Um, and there's a lot that they disagree with me on. I just, I disagree with them on. But we were talking about the Lord's Prayer. We had a wonderful conversation, mm. and um. And, and my students at Portland Seminary were unhappy with me going there as if it was some sort of approval of yeah, everything exactly. Southern Baptist. But I said, you know, we need to have these relationships, uh, you know, across across categories. So if you remember, I did these, you know, 40 scholars or 50 scholars to follow mm -hmm. um, New Testament, Old Testament. And I purposely chose a really breadth of, you know, a, a very serious breadth of ideology, theology, um, and I did that to show that we can admire people who are on this side, my far right, and on this side, my far left, just like Allison was saying, I, I want to learn from everybody. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean I accept what everybody says about everything. Nobody does that. But just having the posture, I can learn something from you yeah, and value something you bring. So something I tell my hermeneutics classes which I think helps put them in a posture of more openness is uh, you are not responsible for adopting other people's opinions. 
but you are responsible for being influenced by their values. Amen. And so then, you know, on whatever issue, I can just say, let me see if I can get your value right. I want that to rub off on me. But I may have a different way of applying that value. And we can reject values too. Like, you, you know, and that's the that. other part of it. Like, um, what's maybe like to put a, a bit more sharp uh, question, um, what's the difference between, um, I guess, ha- having a, a relationship um, so, and, you know, going into that, um, you, that mutualism with someone who holds to something that is inherently degrading of a person versus um, kind of this idea of silence is violence, um, by, you know, kind of entering into this relationship, I am supporting their behavior. And I've had to navigate this too. And yeah, yeah. there aren't easy answers to that. So for example, with, with ETS, um, I, I, you know, I get invited to speak almost every year at ETS and I say no. And I, I say no. And I've said to the board that I won't speak until, um, there are women that serve on the board. I think there are women on the nominations committee now, but not the kind of more executive board, but um, I really want them to be thoughtful about that. And so I said, I'm not, I'm kind of putting my foot down hmm. uh, and I'm not going to participate until that changes. Cause I think there is a dominant culture there uh, that oh, is yeah. not, uh, is not open uh, and, and welcoming. Cause they're like, Oh, we have women that, you know, lead groups or we have women that speak. I said, it has to happen at the leadership level. I, I, I feel really strongly about that. But then again, I went to Southern seminary and I spoke, you know, so I, I think I think it is just a discernment issue there on um, what level of influence can I exercise? You know, obviously the more uh, advanced in my career, I can afford to make those choices to say, mm-hmm. I'm not going to participate in this. Whereas there are people earlier in their career where they can't, they just take whatever opportunities come their way, so to speak. Um, so I can be more strategic about that, I think. Um, it is kind of a question of social capital, like sure. in what sense can I go into a community that's not like mine and be able to exercise influence? Mm-hmm. And then when to say, no, I shouldn't get involved at all with your organization. I- I'm not really going to judge people on the basis of that. Um, just like you said, I think there you just have to be thoughtful about it and just say, okay, why am I doing this? Are there opportunities for me to make a difference uh, in this? That sort of thing. I don't know if you guys listened to that podcast with Francis Chan on Preston Sprinkle's uh, podcast. Theology in the Raw? Yeah. Yeah. It just blew me away because Francis Chan came to this kind of awareness of how, um, you know, he's been on the receiving end, especially recently, of being ousted from certain circles and how he found himself in fellowship with Catholics, which he never thought he would, and fellowship with just a variety of different groups. Uh, certain Pentecostals. And uh, he had this kind of encounter with Benny Hinn uh, that was very edifying and and that he didn't expect. And um, I just love hearing his story. He wrote a book recently about unity, but uh, Francis chanted. Anyway, it's that kind of thing where um, Francis was kind of taught in his formative years, especially at Master's Seminary, to kind of have your walls up Hmm. and not not, uh, get contaminated by other other groups. And now he's learning, you know, those groups aren't as heretical as I thought they were in in the sense that I see their love for Jesus. I see that they have something I can learn from. And that's, you know, we have to be careful not to isolate ourselves from that. 
Well, uh, yeah, maybe that's the clincher, not isolate ourselves. Um, I, I like I like that a lot better because that's more yeah. of an inclusion model that promotes dialogue. Um, I had a, I actually had a friend that unfortunately for a while became a hardcore like racist. I mean, just over like white people are superior, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, the thing is he had been a friend of mine for maybe 10 years, 10 plus years. And, you know, we just, we just talked and um, I obviously was not supporting that and refuted it quite a bit. Um, but he ended up doing a 180, um, not just um, our dialogue, but he got involved in, I think like Ian Randian libertarians randomly too, who okay. listened to him and like talked him through it. And um, now like he, he's, he's the complete opposite. And uh, he uh, married into a, a black family and is now um, having a child soon. Wow. So and it's, we also forget too, I mean, just to use the example, maybe in closing of uh, Dr. Pennington, who I, I don't know if he's still at Southern, I thought he moved around, but um, but the fact that he went out on a limb to bring you in to talk to his teacher. Yeah, true. And I mean, I don't know where he stands theologically. I know Southern Seminary is very restrictive with who can teach their, you know, st statement of faith and stuff like that. Yeah. But, but when someone does that as a sign of, you know, come and talk to us. Yeah. Um, there is something to be said about, ha like you said, having that posture of you are going out on a limb here. Uh, probably not going to make uh, some folks in your THM class or your hiring folks uh, happy with you to bring on a, you know, a, a egalitarian Wesleyan-ish, you know, friends with Scott McKnight, you know, new perspective, you guy, you know, all this sort of stuff. We're not going to be thrilled by that, but he did it. Yeah, and, true. You know, there is something yeah. to be said about kind of, I don't know, the Lord seems to bless people who are willing to build bridges, to build bridges, but also to be Christians towards other Christians. And that's kind of, that's where the end of the day is. Are you a Christian to other Christians or, or not? And, and, you know, going back to Jonathan, the reason he did it is because we're good friends. He, he mm -hmm. trusts yeah. me and he knows me and he knows that mm -hmm. I'm not just going to come in and say really volatile things. Um, so it, it'd be different if he just looked me up you know, and said, okay, I like this person, you know, on paper, bring him in. Um, we have a relationship there and we have a relationship because we're both open to, you know, connecting with people outside of our circles, our normal circles. And so I just think that's so important. That's the one yeah. reason I love studying in the UK is you just have a real cross section of different traditions. And, you know, I got to know my first Mormon family when I was in Durham. <laughs> and uh, that was that was very illuminating. And they're just regular people, not like the boogeyman that I kind of heard about growing up. Um, and I got to know, you know, atheists and Jewish people and Muslims. And it was a fantastic experience because I actually was able to have real relationships with people that don't share the same uh, religious views that I do. And, and uh, that's exactly what education is for, is learning. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's the world Paul and Phoebe and Junia and Andronicus all ran in. So, and and I'm blessed that we have their their ministry for us in Holy Scripture too. So it's nice to see it all just kind of full circle. It's just trying to live into the value. It's what is it? The uh, Scripture is not hard. Scripture is very difficult to live into. But once you understand the model that's performed in Scripture, it's just not been done very well. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, thank you for taking the the time to be with us. Uh, I don't know if you have any closing thoughts or social media that you want to plug or why people should uh, go to Northern <laughs> or, not plug. or not plug or why people should go to Northern to study under you and go Scott local. McKnight and others, you know, uh, so 
any uh, closing thoughts or anything you want to plug? Uh, I, I will definitely take the opportunity to talk about our great programs at Northern. We have Dr. Lynn Kohick with us now, mm-hmm. who's uh, just you know cutting edge New Testament scholar. Uh, ancient historian. And uh, Dr. Beth Felker-Jones is coming to us from Wheaton as a Christian theologian. Um, and she's absolutely fantastic. So she's starting uh, at Northern here in about six weeks. So we're so excited to have her. So they're actually starting a women's studies program. I don't know if you guys know that, but it, we're excited for them to start a women's studies program uh, and uh, all kinds of fun stuff going on. So yeah, come over, come on over to Northern. I know, right? Great and, stuff happening. And where can people, if they have questions, insights, or anything like that, obviously you're on Twitter against your better judgment sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and get right. connected to uh, Ingrid Farrow. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ingrid is wonderful. Yeah. yeah. But where can and, people- and they have a podcast now called Alabaster Jar oh, uh, wow. about which is about uh, women's uh, scholarship and women in ministry. They have women hosts, women speakers, and it's really, really good. Okay, we're going to have to look that up. I don't, yeah. And where can folks get into contact with you? Should they have questions or insights or anything? Yeah, I'm on Facebook, uh, Twitter. I have a blog called Crux Sola. You just search my name, the blog will come up. (laughs) Uh, And um, yeah, I'd love love to chat with folks about Northern or or other things as, as the need presents. Wonderful. Northern is one of the three American schools I always suggest. It's Fuller, Truett, and Northern. So thanks. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time just uh, to be with us and uh, blessings to you. And your wife's a minister as well. If, if I... Yeah, she's a pastor in Foursquare Church here in Portland. Oh, wonderful. So blessings to her and her ministry as well. May the Lord guide her and give her wisdom and strength. And you have a, uh, a wonderful day. Thank you for taking the time to be with us.